And I'm sure Dr. Gingery would be very encouraged at our efforts tonight. Certainly something of an improvement over the first time that I ever sang that. Again, as I've said before, when we moved over here, we're dealing not just with a new continent, but a new hymnal. And along with that, some new hymns and new pieces, new music. And I'm, I don't like to get in ruts when it comes to hymns. I'm always exploring the hymnal, looking for new pieces, looking for different portions that may more applicably fit with the message. And so when you're dealing with something that fits the message and you're looking at it and wondering, can we tackle this? Well, sometimes you throw caution to the wind, so to speak, no pun intended, and uh, we, um, you try it out anyway. Certainly tonight, there's more of you here that know it and that went very well, and we rejoice in the truth of the Lord's uh, blessing in these ways and the knowledge of His power and singing of His glory. We're turning to Luke chapter 8 tonight, Luke chapter 8. back into our series in this gospel. We've come as far as verse 22, so we're going to read verse 22 through verse 25. Luke chapter 8, verse 22, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, Let us go over onto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. And he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was a great, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Amen. May the Lord bless His Word to us tonight. It's a great privilege for us to have it ever read and before us, and may the Lord enable us to appreciate it and learn from it. Let's again still our hearts in prayer. Let's all of us seek the Lord. Your heart is a stone without the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. If you are to receive the Lord's Word, you need not merely my effort. You need the Holy Ghost to take His Word and minister to you. So let's pray to that end. Eternal God, we are thankful for Thy precious Word. And as we sing that which reflects what we are taught in Scripture, it encourages us. But as we have the very Word of God open before us, how much more encouragement do we receive meditating upon that which the Spirit has given us? I pray that the Spirit that inspired this Word will be upon the 
means of grace in its proclamation. God, take thy word and use it. I know not what thy people may be going through, and I know not how they may be struggling, but thou knowest. I pray that this will be a word from God. Fill us with the Holy Ghost. We rest not in ourselves, but we rest in Thee. Come and magnify Christ and save precious souls. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've arrived at a portion, beloved, that brings us into various examples of the power of Christ over and over again. We're going to see that, God willing, in the coming weeks where the events that unfold in the rest of this chapter point us to Christ and His omnipotence, His ability to deal with all the things that we face. In fact, if you were to preach from verse 22 through verse 56, and I don't recommend it, certainly, if you're anything like some of us, it would be a very long sermon. But if you were to take that and to kind of divide up the chapter dealing with the the power of Christ, you would see, first of all, Christ's power over danger, verses 22 through 25. You might then see Christ's power over demons, verses 26 through verse 40. Then you might see Christ's power over death, verses 41 and 42, and then finishing verses 49 through 56. And then Christ's power over disease, verses 43 through 48. Christ's power rehearsed over and over again in these various ways. And even to meditate upon that division, to consider the power of Christ over danger, demons, death, disease. Think of the things that bring concern to the hearts of men. Think of the things that bring fear. And the answer, if you get nothing else, is Christ. Christ is the answer for all the things that bring fear. Not just what he is able to do, but he himself. It's not just knowing that he has power. It's not just being aware that he's able to do these things, but it is running to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, I know not what your deepest fears might be. Perhaps you don't give much meditation to what they are. But by and by, fears will come. Fears enter into the hearts of all. You can't avoid fear. If you're any kind of a human being at all, there are things that bring fear, things that bring concern. And I want you to know, if this is all you get, Christ is where you need to run. Whether you're afraid tonight or afraid in the future, Christ is the one you run to. Now, our focus this evening is upon the verses that we have read, verses 22 through 25. They're not all that difficult to understand in one sense. You read through this, it's not one of those portions that you might come to the preacher, the pastor, or you might Google trying to figure out, well, what's really, what is this saying? It might not even be a portion you might feel the need to run to a commentary. You think, think, I I can understand this, I can see what's going on here. It's fairly simple, it came to pass on a certain day, certain time, certain occasion. We know this is when he gave the parable of the sower and on, 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 uh, the, the various teachings that he gave at this time. But he went into a ship then, that's later on in the day, if you bring all the Gospels together. He went into a ship, a sailing ship, simple, familiar, wasn't unusual. 
And he went there with his disciples. Well, they're always with him. They're there by his side following him. And he says to them, let us go over onto the other side of the lake. And they launch forth and you get then the narrative of what, of what happened. It's not really that complex. We're not reading this wondering what does that word mean? What really is happening here? What is the sense of this? It's fairly simple. But there are things to learn that I think at times we don't learn or we learn them very poorly. And I trust tonight that this passage will be a real help to you, a real encouragement to you, because I know, though you may not express it to me and you may not even express it to others, I know that you're either in a storm or you're about to enter one. The storms are various. The concerns are there's, there's so many various ways that bring us into a feeling of unease. I can't begin even to list the various things that may be reflected amongst this relatively small congregation. But across this group of individuals, I know there are concerns. There are, we might put it this way, there are storms. Things that bother you, things that bring unease, things that make you feel uncertain. And this is a word, this is a word for such occasions. God, if you're facing it right now, God is bringing a word to your heart. And I trust, I trust that you get it. I really do. I hope the Lord helps us to really grasp the importance of what is reflected in these verses to the benefit of our soul and the alleviating of all our fears. We're considering these verses under the heading, All Calm Comes from Christ, or All Calm. That's an L in there, just for those of you who may not understand what I'm saying. All calm comes from Christ. All rest comes from Christ, whatever is easiest for you to understand. And note with me, first of all, there is a calm for those that believe His promises. There is a calm for those that believe His promises. So, we read in verse 22, Now it came to pass on a certain day that He went into a ship with His disciples. Nothing out of the ordinary, really, about that. And he said unto them, let us go over onto the other side of the lake, and they launched forth. I want you to note here that what the Lord says is not, let us go into the boat. What he says is, let us go over onto the other side of the lake. That's the intention. We are traveling across this lake. We are going to the other side. That's the intention of the Lord. And this is important to grasp. If the disciples had paid heed to what he said, and I can see them, the Lord says a lot in these years that they are with him, and I'm sure that many of those things did not fully set into their hearts. And some comments, especially those that were said directly to them that weren't in the context of a sermon, may have been said and just passed in one ear and out of the other. We all know what that's like. And he says on this occasion, and if they had just gotten a hold of it, it could have changed the course of this entire experience. Let us go over onto the other side of the lake. The intention is to cross it. That's what we're doing. And I say to you, if they had paid heed to this, while it would not have stopped the storm without, it may have stopped the turmoil within. That's a very important lesson. You cannot control your circumstances. The things that come into your life, 
that cause the unease. You don't have control over them. You can't say, this is not going to happen to me, or this is how my life is going to turn out. You don't have control. But you can somewhat, with the Lord's help, control your response to them. They don't have to hold power and sway over your emotions and your response. And this is one of the lessons that is very clear in this passage. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And I want us to consider Abraham just for a moment. And how he took the word of God, how he responded to what the Lord said to him. Now we're going to read verses 18 through 21 of Romans chapter 4. Now it's dealing with Abraham, that's the context. And still speaking of Abraham, the apostle writes for us in verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. That's what was promised to him. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. That is, in the normal order and nature of things, he should not have expected to be able to produce offspring. And so being not weak in faith, that is not being dictated by the circumstances, letting faith control, letting faith guide, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He didn't waver. He wasn't constantly doubting. Now, I'm quite sure, and we'll speak of this in just a moment, I'm quite sure that Abraham did not possess a perfect faith. But the record of the Holy Ghost is he did not stagger at the promise of God through unbelief. That faith won the day. Amidst the impossibility of the circumstances, faith won the day. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Now this is tremendous in terms of the impossibility of the circumstances and Abraham's simple childlike faith resting on the fact God has said it, I believe it, that's the end of it. And that's simple to say, but that's much more difficult to live out. And yet this is what we're learning even from the portion that is before us. Listen to what the Lord says. Listen to His Word. Listen to His promises. And don't be swayed by what you see going on. There are many passages which reflect Abraham's devotion to the things of God. But few of them are like Genesis 22. Turn with me for a moment to that. We made mention of it this morning. And I turn, to you, turn, it, turn you to it again tonight. Genesis 22. Just look at the opening verses. And this is the occasion when the Lord comes to him with instruction that 
can't be fathomed, really. So let's read Genesis 22, verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. What a message. You can't even begin. to understand what this would have been like. He'd been waiting for years, staggering not at God's promise. 25 years waiting for God to fulfill His Word, not staggering, being faithful, Lord, I trust you, Nothing in my circumstances gives indication that your promise is going to be fulfilled, but I believe your word. God fulfills his word. God gives him the promised son. Isaac is born when it ought to have been impossible. And now he's delighting in this gift, rejoicing in the fulfillment of the promise, at least to that degree, that Isaac has been born. And his heart is filled with joy. He has grown not just to love him in the normal sense, but this, this deep love for Isaac because there's a peculiar intention that God has for Isaac and through Isaac. And the Lord's not ignorant of it. He knows whom thou lovest. Offer him there for a burnt offering. And we read in verse 3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and made his way, basically. Abraham rose up early in the morning. Do you think he slept? I don't think he slept. <laughs> I don't think Abraham slept a wink. Would you? God had come and spoken to you in this fashion and said, this is what I want you to do. Would you sleep? But what is remarkable is that he rose up early in the morning. And I like to think that he rose up early in the morning because he saw no reason to delay. None. He saw no reason to wait around for God to come with a different message or whatever. And I think it's clear from Hebrews 11, verse 19, when the Spirit records about this event, that he enters into it, and this is what's stated, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham lay all night thinking about his entire experience with God. God calling him to himself, saving his soul, giving him promise after promise, indicating his intention for a, a tremendous, being an instrument that would bless the nations that through his seed, ultimately preaching the gospel to Abraham so that this man had the truth, possessed the truth, and that through his posterity, the entire nations of the world would be blessed carrying the truth to the farthest corners of the globe. And God had been so good to him, blessed him materially, used him 
mightily. He had seen tremendous victories, recovering Lot and so on and so forth. God had not failed him. God had been with him. God had blessed him. And even when there was the impossibility of ever bearing a child, God answered. God gave fulfillment to the Word. So what was it that made Abraham not delay? What was it that made Abraham decide, first thing in the morning, I'm off? It was the same promise. It was the same promise that he held on to when everyone else would have staggered. The promise. God has said there will be a seed, and through this seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God has said it. Now, if I believed in when it was impossible for me to give birth to a child, to, to have offspring, when it was impossible for both myself and my wife. And yet he fulfills it. Then he must, he must have something in store in this case as well. Because he must live. He must live according to the promise of God. And so Abraham takes God at his word, gets up, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, that if God desires me to offer my son as a burnt offering, I know, I know he will raise him from the dead. He has to. His word depends on it. That is faith. And so he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't hesitate. Faith in the word of God gave Abraham calm when his heart, normally speaking, would have been turning and churning and would have had no rest whatsoever. Try to put yourself there. I can't spend any more time meditating on this with you, but just, just put yourself there for a second. And see the faith of this man. And that's what I say to you. He took hold of the word. That's what made the difference. That's what enabled him to calmly make the journey to Mount Moriah and gather all the sticks and lay his son upon them, ready to offer him as a sacrifice. Let me underline what I indicated already. I don't believe Abraham had perfect faith. I don't. He had strong faith. And the reason I don't believe he had perfect faith is because I don't believe any of us have perfect faith. No one has perfect faith. When you read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Do you have any of them perfectly? No. You don't have perfect love. You don't have perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect long-suffering, perfect gentleness, perfect goodness, perfect meekness, temperance, and you don't have perfect faith. And so we are still weighed down by a sense of sin in terms of our unbelief because our want of faith is like our want of love. And we need the imputed righteousness of Christ where we do not possess 
perfect love. And we do not possess perfect joy and peace. And where we do not possess perfect faith, we rest in Christ. And in fact, the portion that we have before us is exemplifying to us that perfect faith of Christ lived out. We'll see it in a moment, but you've read it already. He's sleeping. He is sleeping. That is an expression of sinless faith. That was an example to all of the disciples. Let me say to young believers here, those of you who are still battling in the early days of the power of sin within your body, within your heart, It is one of the challenges of the entire Christian life, but it's particularly challenging in the early days when you begin to really feel, as you try to live for God and you try to do what God has called you to do, that you really begin to feel the power of sin in your life and you wonder, am I really saved? I mean, you feel the draws of lust and you feel even at times the, the desire to be untruthful or, or anything that fills your mind and comes into your heart that you know this is wrong. This is all wrong. Why am I so wicked? I want you to understand. I want you to grasp that you can't obtain holiness by the things you stop doing. What I mean by that is it's not just about eliminating things from your life that you will that you think, I'll become more holy and more like Christ simply by removing things from my life. Now, there are things that the Word of God is explicit upon that we need to remove from our lives. And there is the negative in Scripture. Don't let anyone say otherwise. There are things that must be put off, things that must die, things that must be gone, not tolerated in the life of the believer. But that does not by itself lead to holiness. And young person, you need to realize that your desire is not just to put off the wicked. You need holiness. You need Christ. You need to run to Him. And that's the positive. That's the active. That is what you lean upon and lean into. You turn to Christ. When you see an absence of love, when you see the, 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 the growth of lust and its, its power and that you can't subdue it, you can't get it down and you try to remove certain things, it's not sufficient just to remove. You must turn to Christ for the positive. You must turn and have Him. It is His life that must be in your life. In the language of the apostle, that He travailed in birth until Christ be formed in you. Adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And so as you wrestle with sin and you put off sin, put on Christ. Look to Christ, young people. In all the temptations and all the challenges and facing all the things that you face in a world that hates the Lord Jesus and denies the Son of God and wants you to hold their hand as they live in wickedness, you look to Christ. I'm telling you, if you simply try to put off negatively, if you try to kill things that what you don't seek Christ, you will bash your head against the wall in continual frustration. The disciples did not need to try harder in terms of, I'm going to tell myself not to be afraid. 
the calm that they needed would come by turning to the Word and the one who had given it. Certainly they had a measure of faith. As we'll see in just a moment, they turned to the Lord for help. They got into the boat in the first case anyway. They, you can see, therefore, there's, they, they do have a love or appreciation and a trust in the Lord, but it's weak here. And we can't accept a weak faith. The Christian that accepts that their faith is weak accepts the fact that when the storms come, they're going to be tossed and they're going to be thrown and feel like they're going to go overboard. Now, if you like the feeling that you're going to be tossed overboard, then that's fine. Embrace the weakness of your faith. Neglect all the means of grace. Don't pray for more faith. But if you want to be stable, if you want to be steady, if you want to be like Abraham, you run to Christ, you take him at his word, and you rest in it. Secondly, there is a calm for those that treasure his presence. There is a calm for those that treasure his presence. Not only those that believe his promises, but those that treasure his presence. Look again, verse 23 this time. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. Storms were common on the Sea of Galilee. And given the fact that a number of the disciples were fishermen, I imagine that they would not have been unfamiliar with storms. This would have been commonplace for them. So why are they so fearful? Why, why is that? Well, certainly it has a lesson for us in terms of what the Lord's intention in this account is. But it seems from the language that this was no ordinary storm. You can see it even as it's given here in Luke's account where there came down a storm of wind on the lake. It's like something coming suddenly upon them. And they were filled. That is, the waters coming overboard, coming into the ship, and were in jeopardy. So there's a sense that they are sinking. Matthew's account says there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. So the waves are coming over. They're being thrown about the boat. Water's coming into the ship. And they're panicking. This is, this is the feeling of life when things are spiraling out of control. That's where they are. This is that experience that is all too common to us living in a fallen world. When you find yourself in the middle of something and it just seems like everything is working against you, that is one thing after the other. You feel like you can barely face the day. You're wondering what God is doing. You're wondering if it will ever end. And there is no limit to the number of ways this can occur. That's where they are. 
You put yourself, you may not have ever been in a ship before, especially in a time when there's a storm, but you've been through events in your life where you feel like things are spiraling out of control. So you place yourself back there. That's where the disciples are. And at that point, when they are fretting, when the one thing they feel they need is the active, visible expression of God's presence and power, at the point where they think that He needs to be, in this case, awake and helping them, guiding them, telling them what to do and how to respond, He's asleep. As they sailed, He fell asleep. The Lord falls asleep. As I said, this is perfect faith. The Lord falls asleep. Why? Because the divine intention, the will, is let us go over onto the other side of the lake. That's where we're going. So he gets into the boat and he goes to sleep because that's where they're going to end up, on the other side of the lake. As I say, here he exemplifies perfect faith And if you want to know then how you should respond when things are spiraling out of control, take this as the impeccable example. Now note, this is not indifference. It's not that he doesn't care. It is the perfect God-man resting in the knowledge that it is the divine will intention to cross over. So there's no panic No unrest. He goes to sleep. When the Lord has said one thing and circumstances threaten another, what are you influenced by? Far too often, even the Lord's people as they face circumstances, it's almost as if they've become numb to what God has said in His Word. It's as if what He has said doesn't matter. It matters. It seems to have significance when it doesn't really apply. So when you're going through life and all is well, you know the Lord is with you. Even though it's not all that precious to you. You're not really resting in it. But, but you can say that. The Lord's with us. But at the one point when things aren't going according to plan, Christians immediately wonder, where's the Lord? And what we must note, listen, is that the presence of Christ does not necessarily give calm. It is faith in Him. What do I mean? Well, I was thinking about the language of Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane, often quoted this insight that he had 
He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Now, many of you have read that. Many of you have heard that. I'm quite certain. And you've thought about it. Times of doubt, times of trial. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And I believe that was true of McShane. I have no reason to doubt it. But there are a lot of believers who try to take comfort in that, and they can't. Change McShane a little for our circumstances. Let's, let's just alter the language a little. If I could see Christ with me in my boat, I would not fear the worst storm. Yet dif- distance makes no difference. He is still with me. If I could see Christ with me in my boat, I would not fear the worst storm. Yet distance makes no difference. He is still with me. But here we find the disciples, and Christ is in the boat, and they're troubled. And so the presence, in the sense of the God-man being there, or even the fact that God is always with His people at all times, is not sufficient simply to say that and to know it. You need to believe it. You need to believe it as a reality. He is actually with me. God in the flesh, by His Spirit, is with me. Doesn't go on vacation. Doesn't ignore me. He is right here. Amidst my storm, He is right here. So it's not, it's not simply saying, I know the Lord never leaves me. It's actually believing it. It's actually believing He is there. You see, the disciples lost sight of this. Somewhat. So there the storm comes, beginning to fill the boat there in jeopardy, and they came to Him and awoke Him saying, Master, Master, we perish. It's not even that we're in trouble or we need a little help here. It is we're dying. We are dying. We are perishing. This We are going to the bottom of the lake. And you're lying there sleeping as if it doesn't matter. And one of the other accounts gives to us another phrasing of what they said. So you have lots of things being said here, but this is the gist of it. And as the other passage gives it, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Do you not care? Now they're implying something there, that he's lying there inconsiderate of the circumstances bringing a charge against him. No, that will not do. There is calm for those that treasure his presence. If you really treasure it, if you really know that when he says, for example, Hebrews 13 verse 5, he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He has said it. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Never means never. Whosoever means whosoever, never means never. And this is founded on covenant realities. God has bound himself in an oath that this is the case. That there's no greater reality, no more solid foundation for the believer than the fact that God is with them. It is echoed all through, from Genesis through Revelation, the fact that God is with his people. This is how the Apostle Paul records it in one portion, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, As God hath said, I will dwell in them, 
and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I am there. I am with them. And I'm never going to forsake them. I'm never going to leave them. I'm not going to ignore them. I'm not going to forget about them. I will dwell in them, walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. This is covenant language that you stake your entire eternity upon. For if this is not true, nothing that you trust in is true. Nothing. If you imagine your sins are forgiven, but God leaves you, you have no reason to believe that. None whatsoever. The same trust you put in the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth you from all sin, is similarly pointing you to realize He is always with me. Always. At all times. God, Almighty God, is with me. I could not ask for more power. I could not ask for more assistance. I could not ask for more encouragement. Almighty God, who made heaven and earth, is with me, in me, walking in my life, day by day, helping me through every experience, whether it be the mountaintop or the valley. And so when you really get hold of that, you can, as the God-man, go to sleep even if it looks like the boat is going to sink. You can be like Abraham. <laughs> you can see the water coming into the boat. That's like Abraham realizing, okay, think of it physically. Abraham, at his age, his wife, at her age, it is impossible that they can bear children. And you can look at the physics of the boat. If the water keeps coming into this boat, it is impossible that it stays afloat. But I put it to you, just as it was for Abraham and Sarah, that it was physically impossible for them to have a child. And yet the Lord made it come to pass. So if it required it, the boat filled to the brim with the water would still have made it across that lake to the other side. The Lord is not limited by physics. God is with us. And there is calm for those who realize God is truly with me. He is actually in my life. He is in my little boat. He is with me through the storm. He is there. Thirdly, there is a calm for those that understand his person. There is a calm for those that understand his person. So he rebukes the wind and the raging water, and they cease, and there was a great calm. Verse 25, and he said unto them, where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, what manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, when I was meditating on this, it struck me for the first time, and I have, I don't know how many times I've read this, whether it be in Luke or Mark or Matthew, it struck me for the first time. 
what were the disciples expecting? Like, like in, in running to the Lord, what were they expecting to happen? Because when he rebukes the wind and the water, instead of accepting it as, yes, this is what we were looking for, this is what we thought you would do, <laughs> they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid in the same way Peter was afraid whenever Christ brought in the fishes in Luke chapter 5 that we dealt with, I don't know how long ago. They were afraid for the same reason. They saw something of God. Now their response is, what manner of man is this? But that's because they're seeing not humanity. They're seeing divinity on display. And that, let me say to you, divinity on display without the mediation of Christ is absolutely frightening. You know people talk about God, God's all loving and God's all this, that and the other. They imagine themselves, they've created a God of their own imagination. They imagine themselves that God is favoring them and yet they, they deny the mediation of Christ and the need for the mediation of Christ. Anyone who talks about God without Christ as mediator has no clue who God is. When God reveals himself, it is the most frightening experience for man. When you see God, truly see God, you tremble. Christians who have been in the presence of God, Christians who have known something of God drawing near in a palpable sense, don't sit there and smile. They tremble. They leave those experiences marked. They're never the same again. They're like Isaiah. Seeing God, the glory of the majesty of God. Woe is me. I'm undone. Seeing the glory of God does not make you sit there and think, oh, isn't this a wonderful thing? Like some of the nonsense that goes on in this country. It's so grieving. The stupid garbage that goes on and people that, that accept it. Glitter through the air vents. This, this, is, this is the glory of God. Glitter. Glor this is glory. They're all sitting there. Oh, I'm watching and going, you have no clue. If the glory of God was there, you'd be on your face. You wouldn't be sitting there going, oh, what, what privileged church we are that God shows himself and glitter through our air vents. It is funny because it's ridiculous. But it's absolutely frightening the fact that thousands of people in America tonight believe it. That's how, that's how ignorant they are. How clueless they are about God. They've, they've invented God of their imagination. The charismatic movement is filled with people who've invented a God of their imagination. They do not know God. They have no understanding of God whatsoever. They read the same book, but they have built an entirely different God of their own imagination. And I'm not saying that right across the board, but in many quarters, that is reality. No. It's actually a 
theme through this chapter. God, Christ rather, revealing his power and people being afraid. Just, just note it for yourself. We'll get to it in due course, but when he crosses over the lake and you have him in the Gadarenes, verse 37, the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. So again, he acts, men are afraid. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hid, this is a woman with the issue of blood touching the Lord, she came trembling and falling down before him. And again, at the very end, Jairus' daughter is healed, verse 56, and her parents were astonished. And he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. There's, there's, there's an impression left by Christ when his power is on display. And people say, what manner of man is this? Very quickly, for time is almost going from me here, just, just seeing in respect of this. First, his deity means he is omniscient. His deity means he is omniscient. And that means that he is all-knowing. He knows absolutely everything. Did Jesus know they were going into the storm? Yes. He absolutely was aware that they were going into the storm. He was leading them right into it. He could have delayed. He could have stopped. He could have prevented the storm prior to occurring. All of that. There's, there's no limit to the number of ways that could have been prevented them going through this. But he takes them right into the storm. It's a perfect example of Job 23, verse 10. He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He is testing me here. He is bringing me into the storm as a test. And he knows the way, and he's trying. Now, you note the sovereignty in that. You recognize Job's understanding God is in control. He's in control of the test. He's in control of guiding me into it. He's in control of all the details. He is in control of it all. And Job is trusting, and you must trust. You must trust. You must rest. You need calm to your soul. You need not to be all wondering, questioning, concerned. No, he will try your faith, and the faith is not meant to be like the disciples. You're not meant to be like them where the Lord comes and says, where is your faith? But your faith is to carry you through. 1 Peter 1 verse 7, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, not unto dishonor, not manifesting unbelief and no faith, but faith that takes the trial in stride, resting in the Lord who can carry you through. His deity means he is omniscient. He knows the way that you take. He's in control. Do not give credit to the devil when it's the Lord that's working. His deity means he is omnipotent. Pardon me. That means he's all-powerful. So you see that on display here. He manifests his deity. This is the God-man. No man can do this. This is the God-man. This is deity on display. He arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. <laughs> Just to meditate on the control, the power Christ has over the created order. It's a little insight actually here as he suppresses the storm 
It's an indication of what's to come. That one day he's going to renew the entire earth and remove all these things completely. It's like how we go through the process of sanctification. Our experience right here gives indication of what's ahead. No more sin. He's suppressing sin in our lives. He's working by His Spirit to wean us off sin, make us more like Himself. And we have in that experience an indication of what's to come. If He's in the process of removing sin from my life now, I look to a future of no more sin. Hallelujah. But as He suppresses a storm, as He speaks it and brings a calm, it gives indication to the future, the new earth, where there will be no more storms like this. They're hushed forever. The entire created order that groans right now will be renewed and will work in perfect harmony, perfect peace. And as deity means he is omnibenevolent, that means he's all good. Again, thinking of how Mark records it, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Bringing a charge against the Lord. But as the Lord of his people, as God of his people, he is omnibenevolent. He is all good. He's bringing them through this. And Romans 8, 28 applies right here. All things work together for good to them that love God. They're going through the storm thinking they're going to die. All things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. They all work together for good. So when you're in the midst of that storm, do not question the goodness of God. How can you? How can you? When he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? I know some of you are going through storms. And I'm aware of the likelihood of some of those storms that others of you are going through. You're too afraid to talk about. Well, maybe you do need to talk about them. But even if you do, I want you to do not look at the disciples here. Now, you'll see yourself in the disciples, no doubt, but I want you to look at Christ as the perfect God-man and his example here. Don't miss that. Don't miss how he's being the example. Don't miss how he's asleep, heading into the storm with a perfect calm and rest, with no unsettling because what's the will of God? Let us go over onto the other side of the lake. Whatever you're facing, however impossible, keep resting in Christ and don't stop resting until, don't rest simply until the calm comes upon the circumstances. Rest so the calm comes within the soul. Because you have no control over the circumstances. 
And when the thing you're in is over, and you imagine yourself, this is the worst thing I've ever faced. Give me anything but this. It is very possible that on the back of the worst experience you've ever had, the greatest storm you've ever been in, you'll go right into another one that's even worse. If you need evidence of that, read Job chapter 1. Christ gives calm within. That begins with knowing Him. Do you know Him? Do you know Christ? Do you have the peace of God that passes all understanding? Do you have it because your sin is put away? Do you know it because the storm of the wrath of God has been hushed by the atonement of the Son of God? That's the beginning of all peace. And whatever type of peace you have that circumvents Christ is a full peace. It's fake. It's not real. It's not lasting. It will give you no, no ability to face the great enemy, even death. May the Lord draw you to himself. Let's bow together in prayer. heads are bowed as you're before the Lord in this place let me repeat all calm comes from Christ whatever rest you need Christ provides you need to turn to him whoever you are whatever you're facing you need Christ And I encourage you tonight, where you are, to seek Him, to ask Him for this calm, to give Him no rest till He provides the rest you need for your soul. And if you're not saved or you're facing doubts about your salvation, and for some reason you feel you need some help, which is not unusual. It's very common. Feel free to speak to me afterwards. I'll be happy to set everything else aside and talk with you. Open the Word of God and reassure you that Christ is able to save and keep you. Lord, how we thank Thee for thy son and all that he means to us and we pray that thou wilt help us to truly rest in him and his word deliver us from weakness of faith deliver us from 
falling short in this way. Raise up more Abrahams. That we're strong in faith, giving glory to God. Bless thy word. Be with thy people. Whatever they are facing this week, give them great calm. Be with those who go downstairs. May thy presence be known in our fellowship. And go with all of us as we make our way home eventually. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of all thy people now and evermore. Amen.